Welcome to Science and Wisdom Live, where scientists and meditators meet. Welcome to a new episode of Science and Wisdom Live. Today, Scott Sneeby interviews Stefan Harding, Deep Ecology Research Fellow and founding member of Schumacher College. Stefan will discuss his work as an educator, James Lovelock's theory of Gaia, and the role of intuition in scientific research and ecological thinking. He will also discuss which kind of practices can deepen our connection with nature and our experience of being part of the living planet. So Dr. Harding, it's a pleasure having a chance to talk to you today. And I wanted to just start by asking you if you could tell us a little bit about your work as a writer and an academic and how it relates to your interests in Gaia theory and deep ecology and a more spiritual understanding of the climate crisis. Mm. Oh, thank you, Scott. Very nice question to, to answer. Well, the point is we have got a climate crisis. I mean, a planetary crisis. It's not just a climate crisis. It's a biodiversity crisis. It's a humanitarian crisis, you know. Um, and the question is, why, 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 why has our culture done this to, to, uh, to the planet? And why have we done this to ourselves? You know, that was a question I had, especially growing up, being a teenager in the 70s and getting a sense of the destruction really starting to ramp up, you know, when I was about 16, 17. And so um, I flung myself into the science of ecology because that's what I felt drawn to. But that wasn't enough. There wasn't an answer there. There were just loads of facts, but no, no answers. Um, to these deeper questions of why, 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 why is our culture so destructive of nature? Why, why, why? What is it about Western culture? Why do I feel so embarrassed and ashamed to be a Westerner, one of those people who's destroying the planet? So, um, so then that took me on a deeper quest, of course, and I, I had to ask questions about human nature, about psychology, about spirituality. Um, and then eventually it led me to Schumacher College, this sort of, this questioning, um, and there I discovered some really interesting answers, which I've been helping to elaborate on and to work on and write about. And I discovered the importance of actually putting together a scientific understanding with a psychological understanding, an understanding of the psyche, not just the psyche of humanity, but the psyche of nature. Um, that they, part of the answer, part of the healing can come when we put the science together uh, with our understanding of psyche not just within humanity, but within nature as a whole. That's the sort of conclusion I've come to. You know, this, this is what we can do, and this is what my work is about, so what I'm trying to do with my work. And more recently, I've become interested in, in alchemy the, uh, from a psychological perspective as a way of bridging that gap between the science and the depths um, of our own psyche and the psyche of nature. Mm. One of the things that you wrote is that... Um, We've seen in the scientific worldview that we see the world as um, a dead machine <laughs> that we exploit for our own benefit. Mm. Um, and I want to ask you, like, first of all, is that is there really a, a clear break when the scientific worldview comes up 400 years ago? Like, did do you think we as a species had a more holistic, connected sense of the earth or or were we always exploiters and, and science has just, you know, made us more efficient <laughs> at exploitation? Well, <laughs> No, basically, we weren't exploiters. I mean, yeah. we have an exploitative aspect to our nature. Of course we do. Yeah. Uh, we have to have it to survive. You know, that's the role of the ego. You've got to have it to survive. Otherwise, there'd be no, there'd be no life at all. Uh, but, but 
that didn't dominate in in the pre-scientific times what dominated was this this very poetic understanding of, i mean you just lived and breathed the poetic understanding of nature for example everybody understood in the west you know that before you're born when you're about to be born your soul goes through the various heavenly spheres of the planets and every time it goes through one of the planets heavenly spheres like say jupiter or saturn it actually takes on the quality your soul takes on the qualities of the of the that planet uh, and it's and it's and it's heavenly sphere and then you go to the next planet and you take that on board and so on and so on and so on and then you're born you know I mean, what a what a beautiful understanding to have. It's lovely. I mean, you could say it's completely wrong scientifically, but it's not wrong psychologically. It's absolutely spot on from the point of view of psyche. That's exactly how it is for for the psyche. We do take on those qualities of the planets. We do, but in a poetic way, and and that's what we lost with the scientific revolution. Um, it was a revolution, as Rupert Sheldrake points out uh, it's a revolution because what was overturned was that poetic worldview that's what that's that's what we, the revolution was against it was again it, it rejected that 100 percent. it said the universe is not poetic at all it's just a machine i mean it's a great cosmic machine created by a by god a, a man of course a mathematician um but it's a machine get used to it everybody and what's more we we can once we get rid of the poetry we don't have any obstacles to exploiting this machine for our own benefit. The poetry gives you scruples because trees are sacred, rocks are sacred, streams are sacred, mountains are sacred. Now nothing is sacred. Only the human being is sacred. And, and of course, God is still there, so that's the sacred. Mm. Nature's not sacred. Nature's, nature's just a machine. You mentioned Schumacher College, where you're one of the co-founders. Um, can you talk about why you founded this college and, and your involvement in it? Did you need a... Uh, completely different type of environment to think and teach in this way? Yeah, I think we did, Scott. Yeah, really. Yeah. We couldn't do this in the mainstream. Um, the mainstream does not like this kind of, well, slowly it's changing, but I don't think there's much contact even now between the sciences and you could say the humanities, to put it like that. I don't think so. So we had the, here we were able to do that. Um, I will, when I say humanities, I'm, I go quite deep. I mean, I think psyche is better than mm. humanities. Yeah. Between science and psyche, I think that's a better way of putting it. Um, you can't do that at the university. I mean, psyche is hardly acknowledged at all. But here we could do that at Schumacher College. I, I just happened to come along at the right time. I mean, I wasn't, I'm one of the founders, but the idea wasn't mine. The idea was mostly from my wonderful friend and colleague, and Satish Kumar, you know, who a great Indi Indian sage, I would say, and marvellous. He had this idea of doing it at Dartington, where Rabindranath Tagore, the great Indian sage, you know, before Satish, had had, had um, deep connections with this place in England called Dartington. Mm. So it seemed like the natural place to, to do this, you know, to, to do this, um, to set up a college to do something like this, something <laughs> like what Schumacher College has been doing. You know, so. Can you talk about what it's like to be a student there? How how is the the course and the programs uh, different than an ordinary university? Ah, well, I think because it's very very clear that when you're here, you're looking for yourself. You could say your ecological mm. self. That's what you're cultivating. You're cultivating a sense of self that includes uh, the whole of nature. 
and all other human beings as part of your your extended self. I mean, Arnie Ness would call it an ecological self. <laughs> In other words, you're 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 trying to you're trying to become semi-permeable to the world, to let the world in and let yourself out into the world, to to develop a relationship between the two two souls, your soul and the soul of the world. That's what everyone who's come here is looking for, I think. Mm. And so how do we nurture it? Well, I mean, partly on the ashram model from, from or the Tapavana model from uh, Tagore and the ashram model from Satish, this idea that you have to be in nature, in community. So you're all to, we're all together in nature. We had a beautiful old medieval building to work in, the old Poston, and surrounded by woods and fields on the Dartington Hall estate. So we had that beautiful old English building and we had the nature. And then we just basically organized it like the first courses on Gaia with James Lovelock. And we, we did that like an ashram. So you get up in the morning, you have maybe go to meditation if you want mm. for half an hour, maybe led by Satish or somebody else, you know. Then you have breakfast and you help to clear up the breakfast and then you go to a teaching session for until lunchtime. Um, and the, the theme of the teaching is this whole business of connecting ourselves back into nature, the, our soul with the soul of nature. That's everything we do is about that. But from an economics point of view, from a scientific point of view, with tremendous rigor, I mean, you could, you could be at Oxford or Cambridge. It's that sort of level. Mm. You know, it's very, very, very deep and very, very good. Mm. Mm. And then we also then also, um, we then cook, have lunch and then we cook supper together. We go on field trips. We do all this sort of thing together. And so, um, you know, it's it's an ashram experience. It's a communal experience, a commun mm. an experience of living together in community and learning together and exploring our e ecological self together. Mm. Sounds a lot like a big family, the way you it describe it. Like, it becomes like a family, yes. Yeah. Um, I wanted to go a little deeper on the Gaia theory. You've written about this idea extensively, you know, James Lovelock's uh, idea. Can you talk a little bit more about you know, what this means, the idea of a soul of the earth, anima mundi, because um, you've said you have a, there's a rigorous approach to this. So how does that idea express itself through, you know, rigorous scientific um, oh, oh. approach? It doesn't express itself. <laughs> no. Oh, well, you could say that it does, but it's in a very numerical form, you know. Uh -huh, uh -huh. But you can still, it's possible still to see the sacred in, in the numbers. Um, but no, th um, the other side of it is more intuitive mm. and much more difficult to verify, you know, and um, it's much more personal. It's deeply personal and very difficult to verify. The only verification is your own experience and to know whether it's how genuine it is or not. Um, and if it isn't genuine, to try to, to trust it can be genuine, that you really can have genuine experiences of the, of the, of the psyche. You can have genuine experiences that nature really is alive. That not not just as something you say as to throw out as a, a line, you know, mm. but something you actually actually experience. <laughs> yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. Well, could you could you talk a little bit more about this you know, the sense of connection to nature, inner practice, um, and making a positive change in the world? I, I I think I realized you know when I first heard about Gaia theory. Now that I'm kind of more deeply involved in Buddhism and and also some ideas like yours. I think I see one of my, the problems I had with Gaia theory was thinking it was separate, <laughs> you know, like thinking the earth was alive, but then in a, that I wasn't part of it somehow, like, and how do I relate to it? But the way you talk about it and write about it, you know, we are part of that too, right? We are like 
um, some subcomponent of this of this organism. But can you talk about that that realization? You talk about it as intuitive, but what does that feel like? What is that inner practice, that connection to nature, and a sense that you're part of something much bigger that's alive? That's, I think that's it. You feel that you're some part of something much bigger that's alive. That's a nice way of putting it. <laughs> that you've been living inside of, you know, for however how many years you've been living and you hadn't noticed it mm. you hadn't noticed that wait a minute i'm part of this gigantic planetary organism i hadn't noticed it now i now i notice it ah oh, my goodness so you see it's a feeling that all of you for me it start i start to imagine all the great forests growing you know the intact gaia i get intact gaia very much you know and we know what that was like it was only about 15000 years ago at the end of the last ice age you know, the beginning of the Holocene. Wow, mm -hmm. what an amazing planet with intact rainforests, coral reefs, tundra. I mean, I won't go through all the biomes, but unbelievable biodiversity, you know, and you you just feel the uh, the wonder of that and that you belong mm -hmm. to that. You've, you've come, you are, we are, we've come out of that. So we've come out of that matrix. Uh, and you get, you feel this, you experience it. It's an experience. I mean, the ideas help. But the question is, how do you link the ideas to the experience? How do you use the ideas to trigger the Gaia experience? Mm -hmm. um, and that's one thing we've been working on at the college, and I've been working on that. Mm. That brings us to the practice. You said something about practice, didn't you, Scott? Yeah, yeah. And I'm interested to to you know, loop back to you know rigorous science. You know, I mean, David David Bohm is a wonderful thinker in this area who's an extraordinarily rigorous scientist. Um, but also very, um, very much a spiritual seeker too, and, and talks about science. So as a search for the truth, you know, that science is a mechanism to get closer and closer to the truth. Right. Can you, can you talk about, talk a little more about the science side? You know, I think um, you put this emphasis on the difference between science as explanation and science as understanding, but where we've talked mostly so far about, you know, adding in that spiritual uh, aspect to science but what do we get from science and, oh, and how God, does we get yeah what do we get from science god we get so much i mean <laughs> we know there was probably well i was going to say a big bang we don't not can't make almost certainly something like that happened um and then we also know um that the earth is four thousand six hundred million years old and composed of carbon atoms and oxygen mm -hmm. atoms and hydrogen and we know that beyond a shadow of a doubt I mean, we don't know what the atoms are in themselves, but we know that that's that they're there. We know all the history of the Earth, um, you know, all the evolutionary history of the Earth, etc. So, yes, yeah, so that that's the, that's the experience of Gaia that um, we need to cultivate. I would say, hmm. um, we can use the science for that. You know, just the facts of the scientific facts, um, the age of the Earth, the evolutionary history of the Earth, all the different species we've had on the planet. How the very fact that there's evolution, that there's a, a evolution of species, you know, from simple forms like bacteria all the way through to us and other multicellular organisms and mm. all the, the story of endosymbiosis, all of that. I mean, it's remarkable, really. It's quite remarkable. And so um, we get all that from science and we can link that with our spirituality um, because it's, it's just extraordinary that that's happened at all, you know. Mm. You you write about how in your twenties that you started to see that your mind worked 
differently when you were in the mode of scientific inquiry and data collection versus, you know, the contemplative meditative aspects of yourself that you, that you were in touch with, yeah. um, that, that contemplative aspect would just disappear. I think when you got into data collection, yeah. um, can you talk about that? I think a lot of us have that problem, even just when we start using our phone or, or look at a screen that, that, yeah. that sense of connection and wholeness kind of kind of evaporates is there a solution to that like what is oh, i don't know i'm the wrong person to ask <laughs> because that happens to me all the time yeah so I, I don't know all i know is that it seems to be possible to always keep that sense of connection yeah um and i think that's probably what we're trying to do with spiritual practices isn't it we're trying to stay in that space no matter what happens at all times it's very very difficult mm -hmm. um so I think I think that's what the but if we can use maybe use science science can might help us in some way to to just feel how miraculous everything is you know, mm. extraordinary just the very fact that we're even conscious is remarkable um, yeah um, it's that I mean the science put it this way the science has helped me in that respect um, yeah. I think somehow my carbon atoms the carbon atoms that are in me the nitrogen atoms the sulfur atoms somehow they're all involved with this consciousness is coming out mm. of all that in some strange way i mean that's that's a very inspiring it comes from the science you see we think of it like uh, we start with the science yeah yeah you know we, we're talking a bit about the drawbacks of science but i mean what would the world be like if we hadn't had a scientific revolution 400 years ago i mean would it really be a better place or <laughs> well, i don't know I mean, we probably needed it. I think. Yeah. I think it was needed in some way, but it just went too far in one in the yeah. wrong direction, because we didn't have enough wisdom to balance it out, you know, with the yeah. heart and with the soul. But we needed. It was needed for some. I mean, you, if you ask someone like James Lovelock, I suppose they. I don't know if he would say this, but he would say something like, "Maybe uh, the guy needs us to control the climate when the sun gets really hot." And without satellites and without this, this technology, we won't be able to prolong her life, which she probably needs prolonging so she can reach her goal, whatever that is. I mean, her goal, we don't know, but there must be some sort of purpose in all of this. You know, that's another feeling you get, I think, as mm. part of the spirituality, that there is some purpose in it. Mm. Whereas in the science, you're told it's totally meaningless and purposelessness. Um, yeah, yeah, so you do. That's another thing, you know, you, you the science needs to explore but you can't do that in a scientific way you see it's not science is not the right domain you have to do it with your intuition so the science needs to become a bit humbler and the intuition side needs to take on more of the science and be inspired by it not resist it so much i think the people on the intuitive side tend, tend to resist science and the scientists tend to resist the intuitives yeah it's the classic opposites, you know, clashing, and we need to bring them together. Yeah. In a, in a lot of spiritual traditions, you know, in, in certainly in certain aspects of Buddhism and, you know, like Protestant aspects of Christianity and so on, there's more of a focus on the individual practice, you know, individual suffering and liberation, like your personal relationship to God or your, your personal um, mental evolution. But a lot of the biggest problems we have today are um, collective forms of suffering, like social injustice and the environmental crisis. So how do we practice spirituality that um, goes beyond individual well-being, you know, that that helps the whole society, our environment? Oh, I don't know. I mean, it's a very good question. <laughs> I 
I yeah. think you have to help yourself, though. Unless yeah. you yourself are in a good state, how you can't help anybody else. Yeah. So you have to start with yourself, but you have to. But you also have to be realize you do it for yourself, but in service to your community. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have to f- somehow cultivate those two together. And when you do that, then you, I think, you get a greater sense of connection with nature and connection with other people. Mm. You manage to do that. But sometimes it's not doesn't seem to be very easy for us. You know, we tend to either throw ourselves into the community work and forget about ourselves and burn out, or we go the other direction. <laughs> so we need, to, we need to find a balance. Um, yeah. yeah, you know, one there's a lot of um, negativity, anxiety, depression, powerlessness in the face of some of these global crises, uh, especially climate change. You know, the more you learn about it, if you really become an expert, you know, a lot of people can become quite hopeless. Um, and then some people use spirituality. Um, there's a term called spiritual bypass now that's that's become used where yeah. you use spirituality to just go into this other realm and feel good <laughs> about things, yeah. um, but perhaps in a bit of a delusional way where you're just um, yeah. ignoring the outer problems. So, yeah. um, how, you know, and this is just kind of elaborating on the last question I asked, but, you know, how, how to avoid that, uh, those kind of just feel good aspect of spirituality and use it to drive towards some action. It's, it's very important to feel good, though. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so you need to feel good, but then you need to feel good enough to do some to do something in, with your yeah. life to help the situation. Yeah. I, I mean, that's the kind of feel good we want. We want the feel good that where you think, okay, uh, there's what can I do, and you find something you can do. Then that's the right kind of feel good. <laughs> uh, otherwise, it's not the right kind of feel good, and it, it you know it won't last. I mean, it can't can't be right. And then you, you get a sense of service, that you're doing some service for the whole. Um, and so you then start feeling better because you're, you, you're feeling who you are in relation to the whole and what the whole is, what Gaia is that you're serving. And that tends to nourish you even more. Mm. I really like what you say about feeling good, that you have to feel good about yourself. In, in Buddhism, that's one of the perfections, is joyful effort. Uh, that's, that's right, yeah. It's joyful effort, yes. Yeah, that's right. It's not easy to find it, though, for me, I, I find. But when it, when it comes, it's the most beautiful thing. The most yeah. beautiful thing is when you understand, when you really feel you understand what that, something like that means, you know, you can experience yeah. it. You sort of think, oh, this is what it means. Yeah, but but it's nice hearing you say that, but especially for someone um, in England, you know, because there's a lot of beating yourself up <laughs> in in the English culture. But uh, that idea that 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 first of all, you need to feel good about yourself and have that some kind of joy, and then that's what's going to power you to accomplish something in life. That's it. Otherwise, there's no energy to do accomplish the right. You've got the wrong energy, you know. Yeah. Mm. joy has got to be the if you can drive yourself with joy i mean it's very difficult it sounds very it is very difficult but i think that's the best if you can do that Mm. what works for yourself i mean you're you're an expert in many of these areas what works to keep you joyful and engaged um Uh, well connection with nature is a very important mm. so i i've i've got a few what i call gaia places Mm -hmm. where i go and um, I just spend time there, you know, with a tree, for example, <laughs> or with a stream. Um, I just spend time there and just, just uh, 
watch and look and to be very quiet and just learn and regard it as a temple you know it's a temple i'm now going to the forest my forest which is a temple so you have that attitude you really are going into a temple where you're going to learn wonderful things mm. you have that, try to have that attitude you can't always it's not always possible sometimes you can do it you know as if i mean i spent quite a bit of time in india where it's much easier to do that if you go into the temp certain temples you can really feel that so i try to bring that into my place my guy place and i just spend time there mm. and i find you know i learn something it's very hard to describe what it is <laughs> but it's a sense of how alive nature is i would say yeah uh, how how sentient and how intelligent the whole ecosystem is not mm. just our economy our human world but you know the mycorrhizal fungi in the soil which we're now learning so much about and the trees and the forest the whole every organism is part of this great intelligence i mean it sounds it's very trite to say it very easy to say it but um you sort of realize it and, and it's a very earthy kind of thing mm. it smells of soil you know yeah it smells of moss smells of soil it smells of bits lumps of rock it's very physical very earthy it's very beautiful the guy and thing <laughs> Um and then no well, that's that's what keeps me going and I I come back out of that and I have to face whatever I have to face or do whatever I have to do. Mm. But it fades. <laughs> I I need to re I need to restore it, you know, fairly regularly. Oh yeah, yeah. And to to end the interview maybe I wanted to come back to uh human civilization and ask you a little bit about your first impressions of COP26. Um, is there anything that stood out for you? You know, anything anything worth sharing, hopeful or otherwise? <laughs> well, I don't know. I suppose it's, it's, it gives you some glimmers of hope. But it's disappointing that um, world leaders can't face up to the, the gravity of the situation because they, you know, it's just too much, it would be too much of a shock. Um, so I suppose they block off the implications because otherwise the changes they'd have to make would be so drastic they probably couldn't handle the process. Um, but on the other hand, at least you know there's a foot in the door. I would say, you know, there's there's stuff about reducing coal, and there's stuff about reducing fossil fuel cons uh, combustion, apparently for the first time ever. So that's that's progress, you know. But it's very incremental. We need something much faster, but it's something. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so those are my thoughts about it. Complex. A mixture of disappointment and hopefulness, I would say. <laughs> yeah, that's reasonable. Uh, well, thanks a lot. I really enjoyed this conversation with you, and I'm really looking forward to the dialogue that's coming up. Yeah, thank you, Scott. It's been very nice talking to you. Thank you very yeah. much. Thanks See a you lot. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.